You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm with my good friend, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Mark is out on the field, but you're going to hear from him in just a few moments. Stephen, how's it going? Guess what? You know, totally random, guys. I'll let you talk. I We're just talking about how we use a service called Squadcast, and we turn off our video because we're having some technical difficulties. My wife's taking a class upstairs, and he always shows up around Africa or something. Like, what are you doing? And I realize he has a VPN, so he's all secretive. That's right. So get, you, get your access to him right here, yeah. exclusively on Pandemic. <laughs> how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty well, Matt. It's It's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too, or at least see your see your map in yeah. Africa. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, uh, lots to cover today. Uh, we have a cameo of Mark on audio that I did not get a chance to edit edit down, but it's been just a crazy day. And uh, sounds like from Stephen, similar stuffs going on in, in his side of the world. But before we get started, just the normal stuff. We love reviews. It helps us. Thank you for all the people who've left reviews. Here's one just came through through Pog18. Thank you, Pog18 on Friday. is a rational, thoughtful pod. I have listened to this pod for a while now. I really enjoy the thoughtful analysis of the pandemic climate and news. Hosts talk through current news and updates in a reasoned and clinical used as a compliment manner <laughs> while keeping an eye on down to earth effects on individuals and families really is a great tool as you try to work through the rest of the news environment. Congrats. Thanks you. Thank you. Pog 18. We always could use more of these. If you get a chance, please leave a review. Uh, also Patreon. We're always looking for more uh, supporters financially, not to earn money, but we have a number of things about a gush, a decent amount to pay off to help get this podcast and keep it going. So as much as little as $5 a month can help a lot. You can do that at patreon.com slash pandemic podcast, or just simply a one-time gift at PayPal or Venmo, all in the show notes. One other thing I need to do, a plug, Living the Real, my other podcast, episode six is out as of this morning on Momentum Matters. This is one of my favorite ones. I riffed for about 23 minutes on it and hope you can check it out. You can go to livingthereal.com to listen to it. I'll put it in the show notes, but specifically, I want to throw it your way. I've been talking to people and just hearing their stories and just the sense of feeling stuck in either loss of job, decreasing in income, loss of health, or just loss of motivation. Steve and I were just talking about this a little bit ago, just the, just this, like the marathon of this craziness and seeing the new spikes. And there can be just a sense of like, I don't even know where to go. So I wanted to offer this to you guys for free. I just put it out this morning. This is uh, stuff I, a thing I use with my clients. It's my quarterly momentum plan. It's a template I use with a handful of clients I've created. Uh, give it away for free. Just go to livingthereal.com slash momentum matters. Livingthereal.com slash momentum matters. It's an awesome resource. If you want to like, I need to gain some traction. I want to do something great. I don't know how to start or where to go. I don't even know what to do. This template is phenomenal to help you get started. And the good news is, is I'm not going to leave you hanging because when you look at the template, you're going to be like, holy crap, what do I do first, right? So you're going to get a series of emails for, the, for about four, for about eight days, step-by-step step of how to actually tackle step-by-step step this whole process so that not only do you have a powerful vision, you know your why, but you have a concrete plan. You know what you're doing tomorrow to do something great, better, change as big as changing a career or maybe as, as, as more deeper, as significant as loving your spouse or engaging in a better relationship with your family, whatever it may be to move the needle forward, you just don't drift through life, man. If there's one thing, man, I know 
if you just drift, you always drift the wrong way. You just get, you just always drift the wrong way. Uh, you could say that. Again. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So we don't want to do that. Now is definitely not the time to drift. I, I prefer the, not the driven life. I think that's more self-absorbed, but my, my concept is the discovering life, right? Really to discover what, what's in store for you and discover what you really desire and to go after and complete it. So check it out, livingthereal.com slash momentum matters, snag it for free. And uh, I'll leave that in the show notes. Let's get going now. So Stephen, first, I want to know, it's been a week. We haven't asked this question. What's going on in your neck of the woods? Like, what are you looking at right now? What, what is the school focusing on uh, and preparing for? Well, yeah, so it's, it's kind of a weird time right now, you know? So we're sort of you know, in this phase where you know, cases were coming down or at least stabilizing across the country. And um, now things are really starting to spike again. And they have been for a little while in different parts of the country. And, you know, it's... It's something that we kind of expected would happen as places started to reopen, but you know, it's it's hard to see it actually playing out. You know, as, mm-hmm. even as epidemiologists, when we know sort of how these things are likely to play out, we still hope against hope that they won't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, and so there's really this sense of like you know, sort of here we are getting started again, but then there's also this this sense of like really taking a deep breath and like recognizing that we're now kind of starting to prepare and really get ready for sort of the long haul. And so a lot of the early projects that we were working on where there was a lot of frenzy and just like really trying to get information out as quickly as possible, some of that has settled down. And now we're really trying to sort of like plot our long-term plans a little bit more clearly and just hope for the best. So so it's this really sort of odd time of transition among all of us who are working at the School of Public Health right now. Well, I think it's an extra odd when you said just try, you're trying to take a deep breath, which makes me feel as if... Like, this is the calm before the storm. I'm like, well, yeah. this is a storm. So this is, it's a little frightening when you say, when you say I take a deep breath, gather before things get a little bit crazy, when things are crazy right now. <laughs> so, you know, I will talk about the dive a little bit deeper about what we think the next couple of months might bring, especially when we talk about Fauci and what he said just the other day. But let's, let's hear from Mark before we get going. So Mark is at the hospital. He's got some really awesome updates, most of which I didn't listen to, so I apologize because I was trying to repair, but I got really busy this morning getting things done. So you and I, except for Stephen, are all going to listen to this pretty much for the first time. And uh, let's hear from Mark an update from the hospital of what is going on. Hey guys, happy Wednesday. I'll be missing chatting with you guys. I'm coming at you from the University Hospital parking lot today. Uh, a couple shout outs before we get to the clinical updates. Everybody in the Division of Hospital Medicine, we were talking about this in the workroom the other day and I told him I'd shout him out. So if you're listening, there it is. And also to some friends and colleagues, Josh Raines and Jeff Graham, who supplied some of the delectable knowledge tidbits that we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, and then most importantly, I just learned that my third grade teacher, Miss Everett, has been listening to the podcast. And without her, we neither Stephen or I would be where we are today. I think Stephen would still be lost, actually, at, at uh, our elementary school from the day that his wow, that kindergarten <laughs> left him behind and she rescued him. So thanks <laughs> for that. And uh, thanks for listening. By far the biggest news this week is the dexamethasone study that just got released and uh, the update on June 25th, so just a couple of days ago, of the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, 
COVID-19 treatment guidelines to include dexamethasone as part of the standard of care for treatment. It's really interesting to me. So we've talked about, you know, a couple times we've talked about the different modalities um, proposed to treat uh, acute COVID-19. And so we've talked about antiviral medications. We've talked about immunomodulating therapies, so things that change the way that the immune system reacts to the virus, and then anti-inflammatories like dexamethasone, which is a steroid, common steroid that we use, you know, all the time for all sorts of different indications. I used it a lot when I was in my pediatric training uh, in pediatric respiratory disease, especially acute asthma exacerbations. And we, you know, definitely use it at adults for all sorts of indications. So, you know, this is a really interesting and practice changing, ultimately, a recommendation. So just to gloss sort of what the NIH is looking at, there was preliminary data from a study that's called the recovery study, which is run is sponsored by the National Health Service in the UK. It's multi-center, meaning that it incorporates data and patients from lots of different hospitals. And it's randomized. So that's one of the things that we've talked about a lot is that while a randomized study takes a lot of foresight and planning and logistical effort, it really does produce some of the best clinical evidence, the best actionable evidence that we have. And particularly that's in opposition to the observational study model, which can provide, you know, interesting evidence and some correlations. But really, if we want to know, you know, this intervention causes a significant, clinically significant, better or worse outcome, randomized controlled trials are the gold standard for that. So this study took a look at the preliminary data from the recovery trial and did an analysis of the primary endpoint, which in this study is... 28-day mortality. So essentially, they start the intervention, and then they see in 28 days survival of the people in both the intervention arm, the dexamethasone arm, and the control arm. And using those figures and the sample size and things like that, they can calculate some statistics about how big of an effect was seen with dexamethasone in the treatment of COVID-19. So it looks like the results are pretty positive. So there was a statistically significant decrease in mortality in the dexamethasone arm of this study. And what I find particularly interesting is that the survival benefit seems to be the greatest amongst the sickest patients. And this is a little bit different from some of the data we were seeing about remdesivir. And it's always nice when the evidence bears out, you know, initially you start a study like this with an idea of of the physiology of what you expect to happen. You have a hypothesis. And when the evidence bears that out to some degree, it's, it's nice. And so it makes sense that remdesivir, which works as an antiviral, would have likely a better effect early in the course of infection in those individuals who are still having rapid viral replication in interrupting that process and helping them keep them from getting sicker. Uh, Whereas dexamethasone, which tamps down the immune response, which is often kind of a later phase downstream effect of a lot of these viral illnesses, especially as the viral load becomes overwhelming and the immune system actually starts to do damage to one's own tissues as a result of you know all the different things that it's doing to try to control the infection. Excuse me, that that may actually be the most useful time for a big anti-inflammatory medication like dexamethasone. So they did, in fact, see a bigger effect size for individuals who are 
on mechanical ventilation, um, so who were intubated on ventilators in the ICU. They still saw a positive effect on individuals who were requiring supplemental oxygen, and they did not see a survival benefit amongst the participants of the study who didn't need any oxygen. And so, so it's interesting and, you know, it's a different, kind of a different patient population a little bit than we were seeing getting the maximum effect size in the remdesivir trial, but potentially a very positive result. So some caveats, you know, there are some patient populations that are excluded as in any randomized controlled trial. So they didn't look at pediatric or pregnant patients or very few of those. And so it's a little bit harder to extrapolate this data to those populations. And, you know, again, we don't know necessarily the interaction between remdesivir and dexamethasone because there wasn't a specific combined effect that was looked at in this particular study. There are, of course, adverse effects of administering steroids. And so we have to watch for those. And it does tamp down the immune system. It can cause glucose issues and bone problems. But a short course, you know, of the dose that they're recommending relative to, you know, in the grand scheme of things seems to be a relatively low risk and potentially a high, uh, high benefit. So the official recommendation now from the NIH is, I can just read you what I have in front of me, is based on the preliminary unpublished results of the recovery trial. The panel recommends dexamethasone in patients with COVID-19 who are on mechanical ventilation or those who require supplemental oxygen and then recommends against it to treat COVID-19 in individuals who don't need supplemental oxygen. So those are the new updates regarding dexamethasone uh, just out this week. Okay, the other thing, just to touch on briefly, is a paper that was published on the 18th of June in Nature about uh, cl- clinical and immunological assessment of asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infections. So this is a study out of China where they looked at individuals who were in close contact with confirmed cases, and they did a widespread screening of those, found individuals who tested positive, and they were able to isolate about 37 of those individuals who were positive for the virus but were not displaying any symptoms. And then they did some additional studies about how the immune system was responding to the virus and then also the duration of the viral shedding of that. I think the most interesting thing and kind of the most relevant thing about an article like this is that this begins to add to our base of knowledge or scientific base of knowledge about the disease process and the physiology. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations about asymptomatic carriage and transmission. We've had a lot of conversations about how long someone might shed the virus after an acute infection. And then also about the duration or relative duration of immunity that an infection causes. So how long am I immune from this virus if I've been infected by it once and I have the antibodies that help to neutralize the virus circulating? This study showed a trend toward a longer viral shedding and a less robust immune response in asymptomatic individuals. And it reiterated some of the findings from before that it seems that there's a lower duration of immunity subsequent to an infection. In this particular study, they quoted two to three months as the time frame in which they see the levels of the immunoglobulins or the antibodies start to decrease after a person recovers from the acute infection. So as we think a little bit about how to situate this knowledge, I tend to think of this kind of article as very helpful in understanding some of the 
basic disease physiology and providing some of the important inputs into the types of equations that Stephen uses to model the disease and that the more precise information we have on the input end, the better the predictions that the model's output can be. Whether or not this type of information necessarily changes our day-to-day life you know, and the practices that we do in our communities and with our families, I think that's a little bit less so. Though it's nice. It's nice to know that there's more information being generated. I'd be interested to hear, Stephen, how you think about an article like this and the ways maybe that specifically that factors into the different types of modeling you do. And I know that there's even some levels of uncertainty that you can build into. So not so having a you know, a, a variable like this, like say duration of viral shedding, and then there can be some wobble around that variable that you permit in different ways. And so you can speak even in the, you know, mathematically speak to our degree of certainty about different factors that are getting played into. And so it's kind of an interesting complex science. So I'd be interested to hear about that a little bit. And I'm sure you guys will chat some about, you know, the ongoing case increase and what that means. And, you know, of course, just, you know, lots of thoughts going out to anybody who's listening, who's affected by those, that, that these case counts, of course, are all people, you know. And so that's very much on my mind as, as we're going forward. And so, you know, not, not that we're, you know, afraid and, and isolating from the things that are really important and valuable in life, but also that's, that's just on my mind. So looking forward to catching you guys next week. Hope you are both doing well and we'll talk soon. All right. Take care. Bye. So try to turn that off. Hey guys. Oops, there we go. Sorry about that. I pressed it twice. <laughs> okay, so lots to cover here, but the first and most important thing is number one, Mark said the word tidbits, which is just strange. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you didn't catch that, we'll try to edit that out. That is just terribly offensive to me. <laughs> so yeah, pull second, that clip and repeat it multiple times with <laughs> yeah, our like intro music. That, the, that is now my ringtone for him. Tidbits, <laughs> tidbits. So that'd be terrible. It's a nightmare. The second most important thing out of this entire update is your third grade teacher story. So Stephen, uh, <laughs> what happened and uh, what's going on with how you overcame this? Oh man, Matt, this was a long time ago. So I feel like most of what I know about this story has been what's told to me, <laughs> but I did get left behind by my kindergarten class once upon a time, but I knew that Miss Everett was there. And she, she, she saved me. She led me back to where I needed to go. Wait, was this in the, in the school or were you on a field trip or something? Or like, were you just like lost in the bathroom or what's, <laughs> I don't know, Matt, it was a long time ago. <laughs> sure. Okay. We need to, we need to pull witnesses in. So next yeah, no episode. Kidding. Yeah. I got to interrogate we're, Mark. And... We're, well, we're going to bring your third grade teacher on. That's right. Yeah. Story. yeah. That'd be awesome. Okay. So, okay. So other stuff. Uh, he talks about dexamethasone and its relationship to remdesivir. We'll talk about that. Now, I want to go quickly to what he was pull, you know, talking to you. It's This is beyond my pay grade. The Nature paper is talking about asymptomatic study in China, and, and it, which is, it goes well with one of the articles I just read. We were talking about this before we got on and started recording about this, I, this whatever, whether it's new, new, new evidence or maybe not, that the immunity is only lasting two to three months and begins to cre- decrease to points where it's not even noticeable or traceable. And this must be coming out of the same study. So do you want to talk back to what Mark was kind of talking about and how that's affecting you and uh, affecting anything when, you, when you're in your own epidemiological world? Yeah. So, I mean, I, right now I'm working on a project with some collaborators, um, actually some of whom are at the University of Colorado, thinking about vaccine allocation and just basically how a vaccine would work. And so definitely the duration of immunity and how much immunity there is in the population is really on our minds. And and so we were talking about these these same numbers that, that Mark mentioned and that you just mentioned. 
And I think that this this falls pretty squarely into one of those areas, again, where we had an expectation and we hoped against hope that that expectation wouldn't play out, but here it is. So Great. we know that with, with the other coronaviruses that we know of, the, the common coronaviruses that cause, that cause the common cold, immunity to those declines over time too. And even when you basically infect, intentionally infect someone with a very large dose of one of these other coronaviruses, the immunity to that wanes over the course of a year or so. Okay. And so, but even, even after the immunity has declined, the, the, the low level immunity that you retain seems to protect against severe illness in a lot of cases further down the road. So, so I think that this is not necessarily, you know, it's, it doesn't mean that we're just sort of stuck with eternal pandemic, you know, that it, it does seem like, you know, there's a good chance. That sounds that COVID- like a name of a really good band, by the way. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> like that. Okay. Yeah. They, yeah, it's. I think that the severity there, there's reason to believe the severity will decline over time, but but yeah, I mean this is this is just one of those things that we've been thinking about, and and it's you know we we hoped that immunity might last a little bit longer, and again the the study that Mark mentioned was was certainly influential, but as he said it was it was in thirty odd patients, right, and so we're going to need much bigger studies to really know what this spectrum of immunity is to be able to figure out you know just just what that range is, and and that will help us to continue building our models and just to sort of understand what the long term outlook is for this outbreak. But as it stands, I mean, it seems like this aligns sort of roughly with what we anticipated would probably be the case, and so here we are. Okay. Well, so help me to understand the comparison or difference between, so I go in every year to get my flu shot because obviously the immunity decreases over time. And, and so when, when I hear this, like two to three months of, you know, over decreased immunity with COVID, in my mind, I'm thinking, does that mean I have to get a vaccine every three months? Like, is, is it like, what, is that the same kind of uh, statistics that other ones that we do that get yearly, or is this more aggressive on its decline of immunity? What's the relationship in this number? How can how can I fit this number in something relative to my world? Yeah, so I mean, I think that if you know if this if SARS CoV two follows the same pattern as the other coronaviruses, if it continues to circulate in the population, it'll probably be a wintertime virus. So even if our immunity only lasts for a couple of months, and I think the study was saying that immunity begins to decline at two to three months, mm-hmm. but you probably still retain some level of immunity for some time after that. But even if it declines over two to three months, then that should get us through the wintertime <laughs> outbreak. Yeah. And then the levels of transmission are probably low enough over the summer that it doesn't really matter. So if there is a vaccine, you know, it, it, you're right. There's a chance it might have to be a lot like the flu vaccine where we get something every year as a booster. I I think that that's a very real possibility. Okay. Not to go on a huge tangent, but then now I have another follow-up question with you're yeah. saying that it could be the COVID becomes a winter thing over time. What what makes it go to a winter pattern versus right now it's just like raging even during the summer? Like what flips for this particular is it the herd immunity that's actually the, the flipping number or what how does that switch? Yep, it's exactly that. It's the amount of immunity that there is in the population. Okay. So right now, there's just too many people who are totally susceptible to the virus that even though the ability of the virus to spread during the summer months might be a little bit lower, it's still just so easy to catch that people are going to get it anyway. But after we build up sort of enough underlying immunity in the population, even as you know some people start to lose their immunity over time, the outbreak just won't really be able to take hold. It just won't be able to, the, the, the reproduction number, the R number won't be high enough until the winter comes around. And, and in the wintertime, there are a lot of different things that probably contribute to the enhanced 
transmission of viruses in the winter. Everything from people crowding more indoors to the weather itself can actually help facilitate the spread of the virus in the winter. So all of these things sort of come together. But right now, there's just too many people who haven't seen the virus yet that it can still spread like wildfire. Great. So it seems like another way to see the comparison, the difference between like the the typical flu and COVID were right. uh, clearly if the flu was at this point in time, like COVID, it would be having the same kind of impact over the summer. The distinction is it's been around for a while. And so it, it, it's able to dive down during the summer, generally right. speaking. Great. Great. To, great to know that. Okay. The last thing that Mark mentioned, and I just, it was, it, you know, that these are statistics. We see this rise. We're going to talk about this in a second. We've been talking about this surge or not even a surge, just just this, this peaks and valleys and, and different geographical locations having these hot spots, and that we see that these are numbers, but they're people. And I'm just reminded of, uh, I just have a, a student that I, I met with yesterday. Her name's Morgan, and uh, she is dealing with her mother who has brain cancer up in Michigan, and just the extent that they have to go and be such lockdown. She's on chemo, right? And her, her white blood cells are just, I mean, they're just, they're just down to almost nothing. And so there's, they're taking these extreme measures, and it's this difficulty, and I, it's just important to tell the stories that are behind this, where she even just tries, I mean, they have to get out to get groceries or certain things every once in a while, so they go out. And at this point in time, so many people, she lives in a particular town where they just don't wear masks. So she goes to the grocery store and there's all these people not wearing masks, but she's wearing them. And of course, the amount of anxiety she feels, right? Mm-hmm. Because she's going back home 20 minutes later to her mom, uh, who's, on, who's on on the bed uh, in the midst of chemo. And just there's people involved. There's there, there's situations involved in that we, we can do our part. I know it sucks, uh, but it doesn't suck as bad as what could happen to some other people that, that down the road, but like Morgan and her and her mother. Okay, so let's hit some news. First thing, just quickly, CDC says COVID nineteen cases in the U.S. may be ten times higher than reported. There is nothing to talk about. I just thought it was fascinating that since March, March, you guys, uh, Mark and Stephen have been talking. Generally, we can probably expect about a ten times difference in what we actually see and what's actual reality. Just want to say you nailed it, right? It's 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 July. We yep. did this in March. We didn't even right. know what was going on. Like I just, you know, I was just a young little kid back then. So <laughs> we've come so far. <laughs> we've come so far. I have a beard. Or it's just more it's just grayer now. <laughs> so new data reveals just how deadly COVID nineteen is for the elderly. I saw this. It wasn't that shocking, but mildly shocking. It said that eighty percent of deaths, especially in Italy and some of the hotspot hotspot countries, are are, are 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 the elderly who are dying. And so, I wanted to pitch it to you, Stephen, just quickly. Of as you begin to to, or you probably already know this stuff. This is not new news to you. We're dealing and seeing now lockdowns happening. You know, retreating from opening from certain places, which I'm surprised. I said last week, there's no way anybody's going to do that. Nobody's going to be the martyr, and, and and I'm 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 happily surprised. That people are taking this response, there's government officials taking this seriously. But is there outside of that, is there anything you guys are thinking about or trying to like wrestle with of how do we protect the elderly outside of just the normal pretenses of lockdown? Yes, thinking about stuff, talking about it? Yeah, we we have been thinking about it. And and as soon as it became clear that the distribution of severity was so heavily skewed towards severe cases in the elderly, we've, we've really been trying to think about what to do. I mean, it's ranged everywhere from, you know, thinking about whether it's possible to you know, try to isolate the elderly communities as much as possible to prevent infection from spreading to them and then sort of let infection spread a little bit more widely in the rest of the population to let immunity build up. But that doesn't really work very well because you can't really separate populations that easily. There's there's always a chance of infection spreading over and that risk is really high. So I think it's just a really difficult problem. And really, the the conclusion that 
I and many of my colleagues have come to is really the only way to protect them is to just reduce cases in the entire population as much as we possibly can. There's not really any um, reasonable way, I think, to sort of selectively protect them from infection while infection spreads in the rest of the community. And that's a big reason why we we think that some of these, you know, more drastic measures have been needed prior to this, precisely because of that, because the most vulnerable members of our population just we can't really protect them enough to totally prevent spread to them. Yeah, so I like literally as you were talking, I went into a daydream mode, but the, this daydream was contextual. Like I was thinking this, okay, a couple episodes I'm thinking of the psychiatrist we had on early on. I forgot his name. I feel bad. Oh yeah. Uh, Abram. Yeah. Abram, right. Abram uh, talking about connection and, 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 and what this, what the, the hope and what this could bring about the pandemic, right. In, in light of the difficulty. And I thought about how this idea of how, even in the midst of say nursing homes that are really truly isolating, we realize how connected we are, right? That that even that it just takes a much more aggressive means to be able to protect our elderly because even though there's an isolation, there's still a strong connection that we can't separate enough to protect them, and we need to have a more comprehensive plan. So, what am I getting to? That the idea that connection is much more than just physical reality, right? Because I mean, you can you can have the physical reality, but they still feel isolated, alone, and abandoned, right? So, I I, I just kind of went to this like this this mm-hmm. this idea of like, oh my gosh, like physical presence is enough and isn't enough. And, and just this, this pandemic has just kind of uh, revealed that in a way that even in the midst of these, this physical isolation where they're not truly that isolated, but they are lonely. Right. And right. That, that calls for a deeper awareness of how we can be with those people, which the hope is right. The hope is that even though physical presence is indispensable, uh, it is not the sole factor for connection. And, 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 and all the more to lean into those, like my own mother-in-law and the people around us, to, to double down on helping them feel connected in this moment mm-hmm. and do our part. Okay. Other, the rare, this I want to throw, throw your, your way as well. Rare super coronavirus antibodies likely to yield vaccine, says Stanford. So tell me about this. Like, what's going on with this antibody and this rare superhuman antibody? Yeah, so <laughs> short answer is I have no idea, but I've I've never heard of a super antibody before. Yeah, but yeah. that said, I mean, I think that there's it's important to note that not everybody has the same immune response to everything. So the way that your body responds to an invading pathogen um, will depend on the things that you've been exposed to before. And there's also a certain amount of just chance. Your body tries to identify some part of the invading virus or whatever it is, bacterium, parasite, whatever. And and there's there, there are these proteins on the surface of the thing that's invading that your body tries to latch onto and then use that to identify the thing as a foreign body, basically, and to, to neutralize it with your immune system. But of course, there, there are a lot of different options of ways that your body can identify different parts of that surface. And some of them are better than others. Some of them are more specific to the thing that you've been infected with. And some of them allow that immune response to last longer or to be stronger than others. And it's, as far as I know, it's still sort of an open question as to why certain people develop certain types of immune responses against some things and not versus others. And to what extent that's genetically related, to what extent that's environmental, to what extent that's just chance. So I think, you know, what what this makes me think of is that uh, maybe they're trying to leverage some of this, that some of this variation in the immune response to different pathogens and to COVID in particular, and to identify the people who are mounting really effective immune responses to it. And then to use that to try to basically infer what the best template would be for developing a vaccine. 
Mm, okay. No. So this, I have another question. I've always wanted to know this, and this is a good context to ask the question. You mentioned three ways by which antibodies could be, some people may have uh, higher, better responses. You said environment, genetics, you, uh, there's a third one, but is there a fourth one by any chance? Or is this just like, so, you know, we might be taking elderberry, right? And the, all these things like trying to do, does this like stuff to help your immune system, does that actually go towards the antibodies and help you build up? Or is that more of like uh, getting beyond science and just like, is there, is there science behind doing things to increase your immunity and antibodies to decrease your chance of having maybe as severe symptoms in COVID? Yeah, there, there is some evidence out there and I'm, I'm not as up to date on it as I would like to be, but you know, I think that various supplements can, you know, can contribute to the, basically just the raw materials that your body needs to produce the immune cells that you're using to fight off the virus. Okay. There are some studies that vitamin D, for example, can be helpful in uh, reducing your chances of getting infected with certain respiratory pathogens, that sort of thing. So okay. uh, there is some some limited scientific evidence out there for sure that that some things like that can be helpful for the immune response. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, just, I wanted to know from the doctor, from the scientist. Okay. So we're now we're going to get into this big, the big statement from Fauci. So just the other day, he mentioned that he, he says the U.S. could see a hundred thousand new cases a day if no change. So throwing it your direction, is this true, not prediction, but fear uh, that could happen? And where does this number come from in light of where we're at? Yeah, I mean, I think it is I think it is a real fear. So what we are seeing right now is a transition from a very very intense but what was actually a pretty localized outbreak in New York City in the United States. We really really, you know, the bulk of our early transmission was coming from there. But now the outbreak is really diversifying and is spreading around the country. And so we're seeing a lot of places with sort of concurrent outbreaks, different places at different times, which means that a lot more people can get infected a lot more quickly. So uh, early on in some of these episodes, we were talking about this notion of exponential growth. And you know, I, I was, I was li- listening to a video um, that the BBC posted yesterday. Can you believe, so we're, we're six months into the outbreak now, like as of today, basically. Gosh. It was December 31st that these, this cluster of pneumonia was first reported in China. And here we are on July 1st. It's really hard to believe. I feel so like the BBC, it's been two years. I know, right? It's just, oh time is like so Even weird. Even know it's like... It's like either been two years or just like one really long day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, um, totally. <laughs> but the BBC had this video and the director general of the World Health Organization was talking about how it took basically from March 3rd, I don't remember exactly what the estimate was, but it, it was like some number of like months before we saw the first million cases in the world. And the second million cases happened in the next like eight days. <laughs> and Whoa. so, you know, and that, and that's exponential growth for you, right? Yeah. It's like just cases just double and double and double on this, on this time frame. And so I think what, what Fauci is talking about here is, so I just pulled up one of the dashboards that I like using for, for looking at the number of cases in the United States. And this one is just from the New York times, but they're pulling data from all sorts of different places. And mm-hmm. so right now there were, there were basically a little over 40,000 cases reported today, uh, but Gosh. we're on this upward trend, right? And, yeah. and if, you know, we're certainly trying to mitigate the spread of the pandemic, but we know that if it's unmitigated, if, if we're not doing anything to stop the spread, cases seem to double on the order of every five to seven days. So what he's talking about here is that, you know, we're at 40,000 now, but it's actually not that far out of the realm of possibility that we could be at 80,000 in another week or two. And that's not too far off from 100,000 either. So I don't think we'll probably rise quite that quickly because we have a lot of, you know, tools in our toolkit to sort of push that exponential spread down. But I think that's what he's talking about is that we're essentially halfway there. And when things spread like diseases do, like infectious diseases do, doubling is not a very hard thing to do. 
Okay. Yeah, I, that completely makes sense. And it's, it seems like I, I was looking at the R not and and put that in the and send me the message of that uh, link that you like. I'll put in the show notes of yeah. uh, the stats that, to share with everybody else. But looking at the, even that R not website that we found, I found a few weeks ago, I showed it to you, and just seeing the the amount. Of, I think the red is where those with R not R not is kind of to the right, so above one, and how quickly they're just stacking up. Right. Mm-hmm. There was like, we were doing some pretty good, some good headway. And there was maybe about 15, 12 in the red. And there was a big, big, decent amount of the yellow and the, and the green. And now we see even Colorado now. It was been in the green for a while. And at the lowest part of the red, and the, and the states are just rising up and uh, just, just afraid of what's going to happen this fall when all the students come back for a class and what that's going to do for the continuation. But like you said, we have a lot of tools in the toolkit, one of which we do not have that you said last week is the surgical method because cases are just right. too crazy right now to be able to do it that way that contact tracing is pretty much probably a very difficult thing at this moment when so much is going on right yeah. now. I, I don't know if you, I, I read this article talk about this. So we see these cases rising. I want to throw it your way because it creates a lot of suspicion and a lot of conspiracy that I saw an article, I think this was by ABC or NBC, Black Lives Matter protests haven't led to COVID-19 spikes. So uh, so here's this article saying there's no evidence that the Black Lives Matter has, has, has contributed to the spikes that we're seeing. And I'm seeing my friends post, oh, great. Yeah. So the, the huge beach party had tons of them, but all these protests... So don't have any can you speak back to is that is that a true statement or what what's going on with this is this being some some craftiness going on yeah so i mean i think the the place that i'd i'd really love to take this is is that statement that has come up a number of times as we've been talking about it is that there is no evidence that xyz <laughs> right and and i think that that statement has been used and misused in in so many ways and and i i could say misinterpreted too but but i think that you know it's 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 a hard statement to use because when you say that there's like no evidence that there was a rise in cases due to the protests it seems like what you're trying to imply is that is is the opposite that there was no rise in cases right that you're trying to conclude that but really all you're saying is like eh, we don't know yet you know right it's like ignorance is bliss man right right and 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 it's true that like that you know we expected that there that, that there's going to be some amount of lag probably on the order of 3 weeks between when people start mixing again and when we start to see rises in cases, right? But Mm. in a lot of different states, there was reopening and we didn't really see much happening and that lag was longer or shorter or hasn't yet happened, you know? And so being able to identify, basically the only way that you could say whether there was transmission that was kicked off by the protests would be to actually do the contact tracing that we don't have the capacity to do, right? Mm. And so the only other thing that we can do is look at the epidemiological data. And and as far as I can tell, there's no way to know for sure where the rise in cases precisely is coming from. It's true that that we probably would have expected to see some rises in some places at certain times that we didn't see as a result of the protests. But I also think that, I mean, it's it's really impossible for me to imagine that the protests didn't contribute to some amount to transmission, just because sure. that's, that's the way that diseases spread. But of course, so also has all of the various reopening activities that we've been engaging in over the last period of time. So, sure. I mean, I, I think I could probably agree with the statement that there's no evidence, really no compelling evidence that the protests have led to spikes in cases. But my common sense leads me to believe that 
that it must have. And, and the fact that there's no evidence is actually just a, a remark about the evidence that we have available and not what actually happened. <laughs> or the or the author just simply ate the evidence before right. he wrote the article. Yep. Okay. Right. All right. So, okay. That's good to know. So I, I think it has helped to put things in perspective that uh, more than likely, yes, it did contribute it. But yep, there's no evidence, but that means pretty much nothing. So some of the things on the deep dive that I want to talk about, I had this article we're going to close up here a little bit. We're at 48, 41 minutes. Let me just talk briefly about this. So our deep dive is going to be a shallow swim. So uh, I, I read this article. I liked it. It was called When Cities uh, Were Cesspools uh, When Cities Were Cesspools of Disease, National Geographic wrote the article. And the reason why it piqued my, uh, my, my interest is because it kind of juxtaposed another article or maybe at least a title that I caught from the CDC saying that, that the U.S. has way too much virus to control pandemic as cases surge across country, which is kind of what we're kind of saying and not saying in the sense of, yeah, there are certain tools in our tool, toolkit that are no longer probably available right now because of where we're at. But this article seemed to say, look, it's not too late to be able to deal with this and get it under control, even though it's kind of a raging fire right now. And he looks to three particular, probably, you know, maybe quote hotspots in a different way of uh, how the media has kind of blown things out of proportion. And I want you to just talk back about it a little bit, just about uh, what you think about this article. The three things he talked about that he thinks needs to get under control if we want to bring this pandemic under control in the U.S. is the first one was breeding disbelief, uh, that the media is breeding disbelief in two ways by saying, number one, that uh, there is this huge spike of young adults getting COVID. And so this is crazy. Stop partying. You're causing a problem. And he's saying, look, overall, the evidence doesn't seem like that's the case. That he was looking at Texas, looking at looking at Arizona. I don't know who else he looked at. But if you look at the overall percentage before the lockdown happened, and then you know after the lockdown, it's not much different of the percentage of we people we see that were young adults in the hospital. And then he said the second thing is we say that to everybody, which crazes like a misleading disbelief. And the second thing is then telling the young adults and the and the people below fifty five that don't worry, you don't get much from this, you probably won't have anything. He said that's actually statistically not true. That it also is a problem for younger people as well, and that we need to get our, we need to get our stats straight. So that's his first one. His second one was the idea of 30 million tests or busts. This, this content, which I'm unaware of, I first read this, but a movement to try to get 30 million tests out to have more widespread testing so we can really figure out what's going on in our country and be able to take action. And he's saying it's just not possible. We don't have the amount of resources. Plus, there's going to be just too many posit- false positives by testing random people and that a way better reality is to follow, I think, like Korea and uh, a couple other places that did this was just really focusing on the hotspots, those areas by which people have symptoms and focusing it on that alone. And that will help tremendously to figure out what's going on. And finally, the third one is a trickle down public health. And that's just the idea that we don't have unified leadership. People are saying different things. It's causing confusion. It makes people have conspiracy because there's just a lack of direction. And until we have that unified leadership and a consensus of how we're going to deal with this as a country and do this as a, 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 a one unit that we're really not going to be able to get control of this. Those are his three things. And he says, if we could do this, we would, we would have a better control. Well, your thoughts on this, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I really like this framework and, and I like it because it, I think it really gets to the heart of a couple of important issues. It frames the problems that we're facing really as problems of really like social and psychological and I mean, I almost want to go to the level of saying like spiritual problems, right? We're, we're like, we're, it's really asking about belief, right? Like it's, it's asking us about 
What do you believe? How do you believe it? Do you believe it? And how does that belief change your action? And I think that that's, you know, that in some senses, that's really the crisis, I think, that has been continually unveiled by this pandemic is, you know, there's, it's certainly a medical crisis, a health, public health crisis, but in some senses, it's also a crisis of belief. It's a crisis of, of belief in authority. It's a crisis of belief in science. It's a, you know, crisis of even belief in, in ourselves and like what what the extent of our rationality versus our you know the need to just sort of accept what's being told to us things like that so i think that one of the things that i really appreciate about this article is that it really sets the pandemic and our ability to respond to it on that plane which i think is absolutely right you know as far as some of the particular things i i think the author is pointing out some really important some really important elements that that you know that that we need to be very careful about what we're saying because you almost do more damage by saying something and having to retract it or to change it than you do by just waiting to say it in the first place. And 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 that's a little bit difficult because there's, of course, this trade-off between wanting to, information to come out as quickly as possible so that people can be as informed and up-to-date as possible. So so I think that there, there's sort of an inherent sort of tension there that's really difficult to navigate. And is, it's, it's sort of the space that we work in as scientists all the time. And because we're working there all the time, we get it wrong all the time too. <laughs> but but I think that at least bringing that to the light and, and saying that, you know, this, this is really an issue and something that we need to be aware of is, is, is incredibly important here. I, I also appreciate the, the bit about the testing, the 30 million tests are bust. I, so back when I was in high school, I, I went to a couple of, I, I played basketball and I went to some summertime basketball camps and the, the head coach at the time, Steve Barnett, back at Douglas County High School, had this had this quote that, that that has stuck with me up until now, and it was you know he he took the phrase "practice makes perfect," and he said no, it's it's not that practice makes perfect; it's that perfect practice makes perfect. And and what he was trying to 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 drill home there was that you know just just shooting a thousand shots is not going to change your game, but shooting them mindfully, shooting them well, making sure that you're really being intentional about the way in which you're practicing about basically to abstract it a little bit, the way in which you're using your resources. In this case, it's the time to take practice, you know, using shots. But but in this, you know, the as long as you're being as mindful as you possibly can, that's what's really going to bring about change. And so here, I mean, so it's fine and good to think about having 30 million tests, but those can be squandered in a day. You know, like those, it doesn't take long to build up that number of tests, but if we don't have a very clear sense of what we want to do with them, um, we'll be worse off than if we had 10 million tests that were wisely allocated. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what's really needed here is, is, is not only just, you know, we, we want to amass all of these resources because we've known from the beginning that, you know, testing, 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 that's that's the you know that that's the key to understanding what's going on and to getting ahead of this pandemic but but it is a little bit more nuanced than that right we we need the tests for sure but we also need to use them well and to use them wisely um, and i think that's a, a really important message to be getting across and i appreciate seeing that here mm, that's it reminds me of a huge vice of mine and that is i love like data like i love apple watch data like, so, but this is the thing I'll go crazy with trying to monitor my exact sleep and every piece of like, when I meditate, when I pray, when I do this and I have so much data that I don't even know what to do with it. And so yeah. like, instead of just like, you know what, let's start with one thing and let's really build upon it and make use of the data because data itself is useless. <laughs> it just sits there and it's like in the server doing nothing on my Apple watch, unless I could have the actual capacity to use it and leverage it for something like a laser like laser light beam to do something, do something great. So I think this calls right back to that. 
that's a great way to end this. Uh, thank you guys so much for hanging in there. We'll be having Mark back next week. I think we're going to talk about parascience. I have no idea what this is, but but Mark and Steve want to talk about it. So we'll talk about that. I'll be, again, a Padwin uh, learning my ways around this particular and hopefully be valuable to you. If you want to get a hold of Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R on Twitter. Me, just go matt at livingthereal.com. Send me email. We want to hear what's going on in your world, in your country, in your state, wherever you are. How's it going? How's it been doing? Also, check out livingthereal.com slash momentum matters. I really think you're getting a lot of benefit from this. I spent a lot of time. I know I mentioned trying to do a mini course. and I'm going to do that still. But you know what, guys? When you're in the middle of a pandemic, everybody's buying every camera, everything. I can't get anything to my house right now that'll like record me. I tried to buy an adapter and I couldn't even get that in. So as soon as I get something, I'm going to do a mini course. In the meantime, this is awesome. Check it out. Livingthereal.com slash momentum matters. Subscribe to my Living Real podcast. Just came out this morning. New one. And I think that's it. You don't forget to leave a review. If you can support us, $5 a month can help one time at, at PayPal or Venmo, all in the show, mo- show, show notes. Show notes. It's in the show notes. <laughs> hope there's alligators um, in that show yeah. mode. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So let's, let's not go there and have an awesome, <laughs> beautiful week. We'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.